Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning, Quest. As we continue our series, Not Trending Today, I I continue to be so blessed that you as a church are so willing to ask difficult questions that you want us to deal with about real-life issues, like many of you who asked us to deal with this topic today, creation and evolution. It's a topic with lots of tension between different views, isn't it, about what is biblical and what is not, and how do we deal with science and the Bible, In particular, today's topic certainly is rife with conflict between science and the Bible and even between Christians as to what view of biblical creation and, in particular, Genesis 1. What do you have to believe to be a Christian, for example? Or what do you have to believe to be a person who trusts the Bible and treats it as reliable? What views are not consistent with a Christian worldview? But... As I get into this topic today, I don't want to miss the bigger point. My kids have gotten me interested in the past few years in comic superhero movies and TV series and things like The Flash and things like that over the last few years. And as I was talking with Derek about this message, Derek, who is a comic buff, reminded me of one of the the powerful importance of our origin story. You see, without origin stories, many of our favorite superheroes wouldn't make sense. I mean, without his origin story, Batman is... Just a psychopath running around in a bat costume beating up criminals. But once you know his parents were killed in a robbery, Batman's crusade against crime makes sense. For Spider-Man, his famous motto of with great power comes great responsibility lacks impact if the viewer doesn't know about the death of his Uncle Ben by a thief Spider-Man chose not to stop. And Superman's incredible powers would seem, well, nonsensical if nothing was said about his birth on another planet. And the same is true about us as humans. Our origin story has profound implications as to our worth as people, our purpose in life, and our ethics and morality of how we treat one another. See, as I was preparing for this, I, I was listening to another speaker, and he, he, he shared a story of him reading a, a news article of, about the irony of being human. It was an editorial that was based upon a real-life occurrence, and the real-life occurrence was this. One day in this nice downtown hotel in the city where this editor was writing, there was this woman who had abandoned her husband for her lover, and now her lover had abandoned her in the hotel room. She was all alone, sitting alone. And uh, she was in despair. I mean, she just burned all of her bridges with her family and everything, a lot of her friends. And she felt like she had nothing left to live for. She felt worthless. And she picked up a thirty-eight and she shot herself. At that very same time, several floors below, there was a popular non-Christian motivational speaker leading the crowd in chants saying, I am God trying to help them believe their great worth and that they were the masters of their own destiny in life. A sad human irony of two people in the same hotel with absolutely contradictory views of who they were 
One felt so low she didn't want to live. The other felt so high he felt invincible and completely self-sufficient. And right now it's very possible that we have people here today who feel in one of those, who feel like they're in one of those two poles. Some of you, maybe even without people around you knowing it, may be feeling like life is not worth it and you're, you're, you're facing that scary thought in your mind. And some of you, life is going so great, you're so confident, you're so on top of the world, you feel so powerful, you feel unstoppable in your dreams. And even if it's not you, every day as we walk through our office, as we drive down the street, as we see our neighbors, as we drop our kids off at school, I guarantee you, you are going by a person who you may not know is in one of those spectrums. One of them might be so depressed that they're thinking regularly about ending their life and you don't even know it and you're working with them next door in a cubicle to them. And there are others who feel like they are so confident in their ability to perform that they even deny their need for God. They're finding their worth in their own minds, in their performance, and their drive for their performance. And in both of those cases, not understanding their origin story prevents them from understanding the true great worth that they have, the inestimable value and the peace that God can bring to their lives. So while we're going to talk about creation and evolution, some of the scientific and biblical debates around that today and the different views of the origin of the world, in the end, the views we talk about today are less important than us personally understanding our own beginning, our worth, and the beauty God created around us, specifically the beauty He created you to be as a human. In the end, what we're talking about today is really what it means to be fully human. So, but let's jump into the other side of the debate, the source of the, the focus of the question you wanted today. Genesis 1 starts reading this way. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, here's kind of an amazing thing about theologians. They can write hundreds of pages about these two verses. Isn't that weird? Yet these two verses distilled into a, can be distilled into a simple thesis statement, if you will, of the entire chapter that we're about to look at. And in fact, for that matter, a thesis statement for the entire Bible. And it's simply this. God created everything. Now, That almost seems dumb to say out loud, right? But that's only because we aren't living in the same world in which the Israelites were living. The beliefs to which the Israel, of the majority of the people that the Israelites were living around when this was written to them about the beginning of the world was that the beliefs of the other people was that many gods and other factors were the cause of the created things. But God starts out this creation thing by saying, no, that's not true. I created it all, every last bit of it, including you. Now, when we deal with creation evolution, we run into a lot of problems because we ask tons of questions of this text. We ask questions of geology and cosmology and science and how do all these things jive with the text and how did creation happen specifically and what order did it happen? And 
So we're going to take a quick look at the, the there's pri primarily five views and kind of fall into three different categories of views as to this topic. There's many variations. There's dozens of variations on this, but they all kind of fall into these containers we're going to talk about today. There are three, one categories. There's kind of three main biblical approaches to synchronizing the text of Genesis 1 with science. So let's look at those. The first one is the 24-hour theory, or it's often referred to as a young earth theory. And this theory is that creation occurred in six 24-hour periods. It relies on a literal reading of the text, the day and morning and evening when the text talks about that means a literal 24-hour time period. It's out of this uh, approach to reading the text that the earth being a young earth of about 6,000 years old comes instead of it being millions or billions of years old as science typically tells us it is. The pros of this theory are this. It's the simplest, most straightforward reading of the English translation. And when it says day and when it says there was evening and morning, the first day, the second day, etc., as the text says, it just seems like the simplest reading. It also has a very high view of God. It says God said, and bam, everything happened, right? It has a very high view of the power of God. And historically, this is a, a, a kind of a majority view that the church has held throughout history of the creation process. The cons of this view are this. There's a conflict between the order of creation between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 if you, if you take this view that is hard to reconcile. There's also a, a logical inconsistency in Genesis 1 in that the Genesis 1 paints the idea that plants were created before the atmosphere was created, and that's kind of logically problematic, right? I mean, God can do anything, but it's still logically problematic. And the issues from science cause problems reconciling the Bible with this view as well, because even just the simple explanation of God created the stars. And we know the stars, uh, we, we believe we know the stars are many light years away. But if the earth is 6,000 years old, then how could we actually see the light of those stars without the earth being and the cosmos being much older than a young earth says? And there's the issue of carbon-14 dating and the problem with that, things being dated millions and billions of years old. Now, there are scientific theories and there are textual theories about the Bible that make this 24-hour young earth creationist view really intriguing to look at, answering many of the questions, some of them quite convincingly, but there are still some imperfect areas of reconciliation between what we think we know of science and the text of the Bible. So there's another view as well, and this view is called the gap theory. This theory basically says the way we should read Genesis 1 and, and try to reconcile the science is that between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis verse 2, or some would place that gap between 2 and 3, uh, that there was an indeterminate amount of time that took place. And the argument here is that we don't actually see God beginning creation, the six days of creation, until verse 3. And so how long was that time before verse 3 is that question, this gap theory is what it's called. Now, there are several different theories about around this, but all of them contend uh, one basic thing. They say that there are millions and maybe even billions of years that passed. 
until God one day started the rest of the six days of creation that we see recorded in Genesis 1. And once God starts those six days of creation, in verse 3, uh, there are people who go to the six-day, 24-hour, you know, the rest of it was done in one week time period. And there are some who hold the view that I'll talk about next in just a moment. The pros of this view of reading the text are this, that allows the earth to be old, reconciling many of the dissonance factors between science, uh, scientific dating, the Bible, without, without taking God out of the equation. It retains God as the creator. And for those who hold that six-day, 24-hour theory, theory of, of creation, it retains the ability to read the text in that way once that six-day starts. So it retains some of the ease of reading the text. The cons of this view and uh, and holding this view is that much of the old dating of the world that scientists state as a fact is based upon fossils and animals and even human remains. And so that becomes problematic in reading the text this way because the, the text says that sin, that the death did not enter the world until sin did. But this view says that death entered before sin entered and that becomes problematic, reconciling with that with what the Bible teaches. Uh, It's also difficult to argue this gap theory because it's an argument from silence. There's nothing in, in the text that indicates that this should be there. It's just an attempt to try to explain something and say that it's there. This is a view that many people who believe the Bible is reliable hold, people who are sincere Christians. There's another way to approach this too, and that's called, the third theory is called the day age theory. In this theory, each of the six days of creation are not literal 24-hour periods of time, but rather they are eons or eras or ages of time, right? The, the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, is, it's much debated about this, but, the, 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 but this word is actually, there's evidence that this word is actually used at times to not signify a 24-hour period, but to signify a larger time block of time. And there are solid evangelical Bible-believing scholars who believe this theory in a case can be made for it. Therefore, the pro of this is it lets you see the hand of God in creation and yet have millions and billions of years. Because it might have been billions of years from the time the fish and the birds were created in verse 20 to the time the livestock and land animals were created in verse 24, and it might have even been millions of years after that until humanity was created in verse 26. So it kind of answers some of those age science issues in regard to the text in that way. The con of this view is it doesn't seem to be the way the text reads. I mean... You read it, it says, evening and morning, the fourth day, right? And it doesn't seem like that phrase reconciles well with understanding it as millions of years during that time period. And there are no instances of this Hebrew word yom being used in the Bible or elsewhere when there's an alphanumeric indicator like saying day one or day two in which the word does not mean a 24-hour period and means something longer. So you can't find any kind of literary thing to support that from that perspective. Uh, so that's one category, trying to reconcile the Bible with scientific knowledge. There's another category, which is called, which I'll just call the liberal non-biblical approach to Genesis 1. This approach treats the text as myth or allegory, meaning it didn't happen. It's completely made up. Now, the pro of this theory is it's really easy to make science and the Bible not conflict because anything that doesn't you know, fit with science, you just throw out as myth and allegory. You don't have to pay attention to it, right? 
The cons of this is, is it brings great doubt upon the divine inspiration of Scripture and the reliability of the Bible. Because many people who hold this view say, well, because there were so many other myth, you know, creation stories throughout uh, other cultures of that day, then this is completely like that and it's completely, completely a myth as well and can't be trusted. It's just a made up story. But the problem is it doesn't, that, that theory itself doesn't recognize the very, very distinct difference between the biblical creation story and these other myths that it's trying to compare it to. But the biggest con is, if you do this with the creation account, then why not do it with anything else in the Bible that seems unordinary or miraculous? And that's exactly what many people do who hold this view. They discount every miracle in the Bible. And if you doubt every miracle in the Bible, then why not doubt the fact that Jesus even came in the flesh and was God? And why not doubt the resurrection And when you go down that path, you throw out the entire Bible as just a a piece of imaginary fiction, right? Certainly this this view resolves tension between science and theology. But it does so by denying God can do anything that is not explainable by science. And if we really think about the concept of God or creator, it is illogical to believe in God and believe God who created everything, cannot do miraculous things that are beyond our understanding. What that does is it makes God small and it makes humanity really big. In fact, it makes mankind into God themselves as the judge. This is not a consistent view to hold and also hold to Christian belief. Now, that's not to say that there aren't genuine Christians who hold this belief. It is to say that holding this belief is in conflict with their Christian beliefs. And there's a disconnect there for them. There's another view, and um, it's, there's a big technical term. This is a whole other category of how to view this, this text in Genesis 1. And the technical term is this. It's literary framework view. But that's that just goes like that even to me. So let's just, talk, let's just call this the contextual view. I think that explains it even better. This approach is inter- says to, to interpreting Genesis 1 says that the number one question that we need to ask before we even start interpreting the text and what it means is what is the context and purpose of writing this passage of Scripture? Indeed, this is the first question we should ask always of any biblical text we're looking at. Uh, So Genesis, if we ask that question, Genesis is being written to the people of Israel who are surrounded by tribes and nations who have many different gods and a very different worldview, especially about humanities and the world's origin story. The belief of the people of the land was that the cosmos was created by petty, amoral gods fighting with one another, And it was created out of violence and chaos, bringing chaos into being even in the world. See, the leading fear of the people of that culture was the chaos of the cosmos. It was the stormy seas. It was the natural disasters that they believed were brought on by the continued fighting and anger of the gods. And warfare as or as was either blessing or punishment from the gods, depending on whether you won or lost. But it was also initiated by the gods and something to be feared. 
So in their world view, the only way to bring order and eliminate fear and chaos was if their God became the most powerful and won the battle. This is the reason why people were willing to make sacrifices to their God, even to the extent of sacrificing their own children to their God. Because if they could, A, keep God happy, and B, build up their God and their God's strength through enough offerings, then their God would win and order would be established in life. But the writer of Genesis tells us that's not the way things work at all. The universe, including humanity, was not created by angry gods fighting one another in chaos, but it was spoken into being and created by God with order, perfectly and beautifully. As the text says repeatedly, creation was good. See, creation isn't a selfish, angry God pleasing himself. It's a good, loving God creating order and safety and provision and beauty. That's the point of Genesis 1, the reason it's being written, the context. Genesis 1 is answering ancient questions, not modern questions. When we try to impose our modern questions on the text, namely, how does this explain the arrival of time, space, and matter... The contention is we're asking questions of the text that the text was never intended to answer. Think about it this way. How many of you watched the movie several years ago called Amazing Grace? Anybody watch that? Fantastic movie if you haven't watched it. It's an inspiring story about William Wilberforce and his efforts to stop the slave trade in England. Now, that movie doesn't answer the questions of how were the slave ships built and who built them. It doesn't tell us the health care beliefs of the day. It doesn't tell you how the police force and the fire department worked back then because the movie was written with a context of answering a few narrowly defined questions. How did Wilberforce stop the slave trade? What were the moral forces that had to be overcome within oneself and within the culture to accomplish that vision? And so also Genesis 1 was written with a specific contextual focus, answering the question of what kind of God do we serve? And what is humanity's place and purpose in the world in relation to God and the universe? It was never intended, this argument goes, to answer the questions of the specifics of order in which creation took place or the question of the dinosaurs or the age of the planet. That's not what it was written to answer. When you understand the text in this context, in this contextual theory, it allows for differing views of these other questions And it takes much of the steam out of the room in the disagreements surrounding all the other views I just outlined. And it changes the dynamic of the tension we so often see between science and the Bible. Genesis 1 was written to put things into order. How God is a good God of order. How we fit in relation to God and the universe. Even down to the ordered rhythm of life, including Sabbath rest. 
Let's look at the text a little more carefully and read it more carefully. But instead of me reading it, I'm going to let you listen to the Apollo 8 astronauts reading it on Christmas Eve 1968 from space. And they're going to see as they read it this famous picture that they took, the first picture of the earth from a lunar sunrise. And I want you to allow yourself to think back to that time and put yourself in that capsule with them and be there with them and and, and feel the excitement of scientific discovery still married to the awe of God and his creation. And as you listen, let the the verses turn your heart towards worship, which, which is the ultimate intent of this passage. Now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. I don't know if you heard within the reading of the text, there is this amazing, profound, poetic symmetry. Similar to that which is used throughout all the Old Testament, one commentary I read took dozens of pages to describe this kind of literature, the poetic nature of this literature, and compare it to other places in the Bible we're looking at. But let me just show you this symmetry in a very simple diagram that will come up on the screen. Days 1 through 3 are tied together, and days 4 through 6 are tied together. Days one through three are about order, bringing order, separating the chaos and putting everything into its right compartments, light and darkness, sky and seas, water and land and plants in the right order, bringing order out of chaos, setting the stage for what will be. Now, these days are still largely blank slates, no living beings yet. Days four through six are all about extravagantly filling the creation with the beauty and with life and the symmetry is obvious. Day four, 
God takes light and darkness and turns it into things. All of us stand in awe of in creation, of the, beauty, of the beauty and complexity. We all love to go out on, on a night and see the stars or we see the sun and, and we see the moon. And, and he doesn't just fill the sky with a few lights or, or put them in rows like our Christmas net lights. There, there, there's this unpredictability. There's this beauty. There's this mystery. There's this extravagance in the stars, the planets, the moons, and the sun. Day five, God extravagantly fills the sky and the seas with birds and fish. The text actually says the the seas were teeming with fish. There's this sense of abundance and extravagance in the text. And at every step, God is rejoicing at what he's creating, calling it good. See, creation is not out of anger or fights, but it is good, ordered, extravagant, more than enough, simply beautiful, showing us something about the God, the one who is creating. Day six, to the water and dry land, God adds animals of every kind. Everything did not originate, the text tells us, in one life form. God creates specific kinds of life forms from which microevolution has added lots of variety, just like my little frou-frou dog, peekaboo dog at home. It's, you know, it's a cross between a Pekingese and a poodle. We get lots of little microevolution throughout creation that's fun and weird and makes you not feel manly when you're walking the dog. But, you know... And then to all of that, God adds the pinnacle of his creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the, and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God created humanity as the distinct pinnacle of his creation. Humanity, male and female, created in the image of God. And this is where humanity fits in God's creation. We are the only beings made in His image, special, of great worth. You see, if we understand our origin story, you can never be that person in a hotel room without worth or meaning. And you can never be that person on the first floor in that conference saying, I am God, being so confident and powerful either. We are not God, and yet we are also of inestimable worth and purpose made in his image. See, I think the strongest biblical case, in my opinion, is that Genesis 1 is intended to be communicating what this contextual theory states because it resolves the conflicts in the order of creation between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's just so much biblical evidence comparing the style of writing to other similar styles and writing elsewhere in the Bible that, that, that we would interpret differently or interpret in this way. I mean, we see this kind of pattern elsewhere in the Bible where one event is reported in two ways, one historically ordered account and one poetic statement. The intent of the latter is to communicate theological truth leading a person to worship. 
You see this in Judges 4 and 5, this historical account of a battle, and you see Deborah's poetic song giving the theological meaning. You see it in the parting of the Red Sea, Red sea accounts where you have a historical account and a poetic theological worship statement in Miriam's song, one intended to communicate the event and one intended to communicate the meaning. And we see this between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, 4 and following. Many scholars like Tim Keller and many others say that 2, 4 and following is the beginning of the ordered historical account. Think about it. We do this in our own life too. It's like the difference between asking a friend who went through a divorce to tell you what happened in order or asking them the question, what did you learn from your experience? See, if you ask that latter question, you do get true meaning, but you don't necessarily get things in the order that they happen, do you, from that conversation? Again, there are many people who argue Genesis 1 is this poetic theological meaning and Genesis 2-4 is the order to count. So where does this leave us with all the young, old, earth science questions? Well, the reality is you can hold to this contextual view of Scripture and still believe in a young earth or you could believe in an old earth. And regardless of the view you take, though, the non-negotiables, if you want to trust the Bible as reliable, if you want to be within Christian theology, there are a few non-negotiables. They are simply, number one, God created everything. Number two, humanity is created in God's image as the pinnacle of his creation with a divine purpose to care for his creation and worship him and have a special relationship with God. And three, death, disease, pain, things not working right, natural disasters entered the world due to the sin of humanity and therefore the need for the gospel and for salvation. See, those are the non-negotiables of our origin story. The problem we find today is that there are advocates of various positions who argue so strongly for their position that they will say, if you don't believe as I do, then you undermine the authority of Scripture. And that's simply not true, other than, as I specified earlier, in the liberal view. Many of the greatest scholarly advocates of the Bible being inspired and fully reliable as the Word of God do not believe a young earth view of theology, but a contextual one and even an old earth view. And many make credible biblical cases for their stand while also making credible biblical cases for the reliability of Scripture. There are also scholars and scientists who believe a young earth view of Bible and creation, and I think they're extremely valuable to listen to. Intriguing theological and scientific theories But the most important thing about the contextual view is that it helps us understand the bigger picture of God and the gospel of Jesus. We understand who God is. We understand why we can trust a God of order who created the world good. We understand that God created humanity very good in his image, who loves us in in a special way, who wants to provide everything we need in even abundance if we will trust Him and follow His ways and learn to step into His ordered way of living and accept the salvation from our own sin and begin to walk once again into that good, ordered creation that He created us to be. 
You see, the purpose of Genesis 1 is not to establish the order of creation, but to establish the order of relationship with God. It is the earliest version of the gospel that God loves us. God wants relationship with us. And that relationship is based in the good order that God designed that brings us, when we live in that order, into a full, good, abundant, beautiful life. See, if you're here today and you've not chosen to trust God and to know Him in that way, then God's invitation to the Israelites back then when He wrote it is the same invitation to you today. Will you choose to follow this one good true, all-powerful God. And you can do that right now by just talking to Him and making that choice. We're going to pause for a second, have some Q&A. And would you welcome for, with me Zach, our, our, our worship leader, is going to come. Zach leans towards a young earth view in his, in his area, and Paul Koval's coming. Paul is a scientist who studied this from a biblical perspective a bunch, and Paul leans more to an old earth view. So we're going to take a moment and take a few questions. Cool, cool. Uh, so one I'd love to hit, uh, did Adam and Eve walk among the dinosaurs? This is such a good question. Um, I would say based off of, I mean, the, the, the evolutionary perspective would be like uh, that dinosaurs died well before, they died in the cataclysm. Um, and young earth, I mean, based on the Bible, the animals were created the same day as humans, so therefore dinosaurs did walk on the earth. And there's actually a lot of evidence. There's cave drawings of what look like dinosaurs. There's dragon myths all over the world. Um, even in Job, uh, Job 40, 15 through 19, has this very interesting set of verses. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. His strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. That sounds an awful lot like those big, like, bronchiosaurs or something like that, the, like, really big dinosaur. So I would say yes, they, they were together. Ooh, we're, we're coming out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a scientist. I make my, uh, earn my living by science, but I grew up, uh, uh loving the way things come together, a naturalist, a farmer, a hunter, a fisherman, and, uh, my personal belief is seeing all that turned me into a Christian, seeing the wonderfulness and the order of life became a Christian. But uh, I would say my wrestling match with that, so this was harder than last last group. <laughs> the biblical account of, I guess I have two sub-answers to that. Number one, in the fossil record and the certain evidence we find, believing sort of the dating and what's happening, there isn't evidence that man walked with dinosaurs. And the funny answer is, there isn't a brontosaurus, by the way. <laughs> you realize, I realized it was a mistake that they had two of them mixed up. We put the wrong head on the wrong body. So my six-year-old nephew, when I said, oh, I like brontosaurus. He said, there's no, everybody knows there was never a brontosaurus. So they had that wrong. But B, I think the, uh, uh, in the biblical passage you brought up, there, I'm not saying there doesn't that thing exist now. I believe, you know, look at the deep sea divers. We still see squids that are 100 meters long. We're still finding other things that are. So I'm not saying there aren't even dinosaur-type animals that we just haven't found. So saying that one picture is it is not enough evidence to me to say that they did walk at the same time. But this whole conversation, I'm trying to build peace in that what was important for God 
to have us know in the Bible said over and over and over. You know, Christ, grace, forgiveness, all is over and over. And so it doesn't mess up my theory and maybe his to have one description of a dinosaur somewhere that could be or could not, not enough evidence and not important enough. So that's how I reconcile that passage. Yeah, and I think some of the some of the issues of answering questions about how, how old the earth is, if for me as a contextual person, it still leaves on the table whether it's young or old. But it takes that Genesis one off and it removes actually a lot of the a lot of the problems we have with that and allows me to be more in a position of you know what? God's gonna lead us in wisdom and knowledge over time where science is gonna prove more and more how he created life to be. And so if I'm having conversations with people who disagree with, you know, young earth or old earth, I, I don't have to be defensive anymore. I can just start having the conversation and turn it back to relationships. So if somebody argues that science proves this, I can say, yeah, what does that say about God? See, I think the purpose of Genesis 1 is to constantly lead us back to those relational questions. That's the purpose why it was written. So our conversations about this with our friends who don't believe or who struggle with beliefs can constantly lead people back to that same relational question by saying, if you believe the earth is old, what does that say about God? How does that explore the beauty of God and the majesty of God? If, if, if the earth is young, how does that do that? And uh, somebody asked in the first service, where do I lean? I lean marginally young earth. I'm kind of... Um, I'm kind of on the, on the age of the earth. I'm kind of a lot like I am on end times. We'll figure it out and God will tell us someday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my statement, oh, I interrupted. Yeah. We had, the first service is interesting. I think I still want to you know, be a peacemaker here. I think that what is essential, the essential doctrines, this isn't. What my encouragement is, is I have young, my wife is a high school science teacher in a Christian school, and so she really wrestles with this, and she gave me all these notes, so I'm trying to use her wisdom to channel it. But I think that the thing that I really want to stress, even among you here, is that, you know, there are current things that, the, the, the current theories that operate how we learn and how we view science. Science isn't a bad thing. God created science. He, he welcomes uh the worship is his world. He welcomes the investigation even from Adam naming the animals. He welcomed, look at this world, learn from it. I think the, I guess I just, my point I want to encourage people is, A, we need oncologists and cancer study persons and doctors and everybody else that are in Christians in this world to make a difference, whether it's just here or in the missionary field, whatever. And you have to be relatively versed in this theory and these ideas to go through schools to get there. So I encourage everybody to, you know, it's good to have a healthy skepticism if you're going through the true worldview of evolution, but still uh, young people need to learn it enough to be functional enough in the natural sciences and health sciences. B is if you're going to argue with somebody, you need to know what they're going to talk about. I mean, the truest young earth, it was Bishop Usher said that the earth was created October 18th through 24th on uh, 4000 BC. And, and Adam was created October 23rd, was Adam's birthday. So well, Why couldn't you get closer than that? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, come on. I know. I'm just saying. So I just think... Out of respect to all of us to, to generally learn the other pre, and I think your presentation was great. We need to learn 
uh, what, you know, how to witness to somebody and where that, where that goes. And even this week when I was talking to my Christian scientist friends, some other non-believer was there and brought up some questions and some, and it was just interesting. Well, here, what do you believe to have a rational to be able to put that forth is just important. So I still, y'all you know, love these guys. We might have a little bit of disagreements, but, uh, you know, this is the theory and we work. And my last thing, I'll, sh- I'll shut up. Big Bang Theory. Everybody thinks the Big Bang Theory is how the earth was, how this was all created. You know, a hundred years ago, the Darwinianists, Darwinian evolutionists thought it was all null and void and nothing. And then this just spontaneously started. Now already they say, no, there's a big bang. All, you know, science has gotten back to scripture. Science is that it was nothing and then burst into existence. So sometimes you know, all the scientists cross back. Everybody here is to have, would think big bang theory is a fact. And so, you know, science and the and interplay of, of religion and science is, is wonderful and beautiful, and that's how I reconcile in my life, and that's how I'm still a Christian scientist. Yeah. If, if I could clarify, too, with, like, the difference between when we're talking about evolution, like, microevolution is absolutely, like, good science, like, the difference between species, how they change. Like, we don't have to be afraid of that. Like, natural selection is something that can be observed from generations to generations in organisms. The difference in what we're talking about with macroevolution is like species changing from one kind to another. And that is where like in, when you study DNA, there's very little evidence of like DNA adding information out of nothing to create a new organism out of its kind. And so that is, you know, one of the most convincing arguments for me as far as young earth. Um, and when we're talking about evolution, it's helpful to keep those two separate. Yep. And micro is, Micro's good. (laughs) The nerd answer is micro is change within a species, and macro is jumping between species. And even if you're a theistic theistic evolutionary as I am, there's big gaps between how, and even in Genesis, there's big gaps between the birds and then reptiles and everything else. And if you believe in a theistically guide creation of all this, that's how you explain it. There's stuff that doesn't happen, so I agree. And that's the, you know, what, when you're arguing with a non-Christian or somebody's raw scientist, you ask them the holes in that. Well, how do you explain this jump in? How do you explain this jump in the, in the record and such like that? So I agree. Thank you guys. Appreciate you very much. Worship team, come on. Would you stand with me for just a second? And, and, uh, I know some of you, as we started off, uh, you know, some of you may have come here today and you may have been, uh, thinking about, is life worth it? And we don't want to end just on a heady note. We want to end on, a, on the invitation. Go ahead and stand, please. We want to end on the invitation to connect with God and the invitation to prayer. So uh, just enjoy, enjoy the song. I know we're running a little late today, uh, but just enjoy, enjoy the song. Allow yourself to reconnect back with God, and then we'll close with prayer. Thanks for joining us today. I, I, I know we didn't get to everybody's question, but I appreciate you, the questions you submitted. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that you are such a blessing, that you created us good. You created order. You want abundance and extravagant for our, extravagance for our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to teach every one of us how to walk into that order of your salvation, of your goodness and experience that more every day. And Lord, even now as we close our service by giving an offering, Lord, would you continue to shape our hearts and shape our capacity so that we can be the most generous people on the planet, all for the sake of your goodness and your kingdom in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and...
you'd say, yeah, I've been one of those people that I've been, I've been questioning whether life is worth it. Don't leave today without getting prayer. If you're here with a, a need for healing or any other thing going on in your life, use this time right now as we close and dismiss to turn to a neighbor or come down to somebody up front and allow God the opportunity to make himself real to you in this moment. God bless. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.